For the past few weeks at Trinity, we've been preaching this sermon series on a new heaven and a new earth. We've been trying to look at the whole of the biblical witness from Genesis all the way through Revelation to kind of help us give that bigger sense of what it is that's going on in the Holy Scriptures. And so today we're beginning Revelation. For the next five weeks, we'll be looking at the whole of the book of Revelation. And today's reading is the first chapter of Revelation. So I invite you now to follow along on the screens, or if you'd prefer to grab the pew Bibles in front of you, you can do that as well. Listen to God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution in the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. And see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, 
What is and what is to take place after this? As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Friends, this is the gift of God's word. Let us pray together. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. About a week and a half ago here at Trinity, we had a joint deacons and elders meeting. The deacons and the elders at Trinity are many of our wonderful spiritual leaders here at the church. They're two different entities of leaders in the church. And we only do this meeting once a year. And it was a very special evening of storytelling, eating delicious food, and praying together. And while we were eating this taco meal, uh, we had some icebreaker get-to-know-you questions as we sat around the dinner tables. And one of the things that we talked about was, what was something that we have accomplished lately that we were proud of? And, And while we shared those stories, it was just such a joyful conversation. People were proud of the most amazing things. Someone sitting next to me talked about how proud they were of making these beautiful costumes for Halloween for her daughters. Another person told me that they'd been learning how to do Argentinian tango dance. Wow. I don't even know what that is, but it sounded amazing. Another person said they'd been working really hard at their job to... He had learned this story about the very first African-American football recruit at Stanford University... And he wanted to share this story, and he was able to publish it. Everybody was sharing these stories about what I just thought were beautiful examples, and you could tell the joy on their face as they shared about these accomplishments. Accomplishments can be such a joyful part of our life existence, right? I'm sure you can relate that there are things in your life that you have accomplished that you feel a great sense of joy in. For the four-year-olds, the five-year-olds, the six-year-olds, I think of looking at joyful noise and what an accomplishment to, to memorize and internalize music and then to sing it in front of this audience today. What a great accomplishment. I hope each and every one of you feels joy today in having done that. Maybe you've also had the opposite experience, though, too, of trying something new and maybe finding frustration and anxiety. I'm sure if I learned Argentinian tango, I'd probably find more frustration than joy. And I'm sure, young children, you can relate to that too. Maybe you've tried playing a sport or a musical instrument or singing, and and it just doesn't suit you. It doesn't go well. It doesn't fit you. These ideas about accomplishment, I believe, are at the heart of our scripture reading today. And they're also at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, As Mark said earlier, today is the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Before the Reformation, there were two churches in Christianity. There was the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. That was it. You'll see on your bulletin, if you look at it, there's a picture of a church on there. And you can put it on the screen, too. This is a picture of what the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany, looked like 500 years ago. Martin Luther, the Catholic priest who began the Reformation when he posted his 95 theses, he did so actually on the side of the door. You can see it a little bit better on the screen. 
as the path that leads up to it. That's where he posted his 95 theses. The legends say that he nailed them to the door in a dramatic fashion, but scholars think maybe he just put some wax seal on it. But something was happening in that time that was deeply troubling to Luther. As Mark also said, he, it's like he copied my sermon in some ways, but early in the 1400s, the Pope wrote a papal bull, and the papal bull was a formal way for the Pope to just create a law about whatever he wanted to do at that time. And the law that he wrote essentially said that there were some sins that you committed, you may not be able to pray your way out of it, or a priest may not be able to forgive you for it, but if you paid your money to the church, a large sum of money, they'd write you this letter of indulgence to ensure that your sin would be forgiven by God in the church. And of course, you know, it's not always a good thing necessarily to judge the past by the present, but can you imagine this? If you had done something in your life that was so horrific, so sinful, and, and you felt like the only way to make this right between you and God and your community was to come to me and to write a $100,000 check, and then I say to you, you're okay, you're good, you're, you're back in good graces with God. That would seem outrageous. But that is precisely what was going on 500 years ago. And, and Luther was not just a priest, but he was also a professor at the University in Wittenberg. And he learned Latin, he learned Greek, he learned Hebrew. He read the Bible in the original language. Up until that point, the only translation really available to people was the Latin translation of the Bible. No one had their own Bibles. If you own a Bible, you own it because of the Protestant Reformation. If you have something in your own language, it's because of the Protestant Reformation. Luther translated the scriptures into German so that people could read it in their own languages. They only knew what was in the scriptures because of what the priests were telling them. At the heart of what Luther discovered when he started to read the Bible in the original languages was that the good news was that salvation was by grace through Jesus Christ and not anything else, not a letter of indulgence. There's this famous quote that I want to read from Martin Luther. And Luther said, we are all sinners and lost. If then we are to be righteous and blessed, it must come about through Christ. But because we are righteous and blessed through Christ alone, he must be more than a pure and simple man. For man's hand and power can make no one righteous and blessed. God must do it himself. And we recognize that today, that God did it in Christ alone. Our salvation, this great accomplishment in faith, comes from Jesus, not our own works. If we look at all the 95 theses, which we won't do today, but you could, you can Google it. Just Google the 95 theses and you can look at all of them. And I've read that document a few times. But I wanted to highlight two parts of the 95 theses that I think is uh, unique for us today. Two convictions that Luther had that I think kind of run through the whole of the 95 theses. The first is that Luther's conviction, which I already shared, that salvation is by grace and Christ alone and not anything else. Let's look at the 52nd Theses that he posted. It says, It is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence commissary or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. That's a big statement. The second reason I think that Luther was 
fed up with these letters of indulgence is that it had to do with the justice issue going on at that time too. That it had to go with a financial inequity in the community. If you could pay your own way out of sin, what would that mean for the least of these? There was a religious injustice going on. If you could buy your way out of sin and into heaven, then heaven would be reserved for the rich. That's the message that would be behind it. But Luther knew that that thought was in error. So he wrote these three theses, 62 through 64, that I want to read. It says, The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. But this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. On the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is naturally most acceptable, for it makes the first, or it makes the last to be first. See what Luther's saying there? He's saying that actually, in fact, if you're trying to pay your way into heaven, it's working against you because it's showing that being the first, you're going to become the last in trusting in finances rather than in Christ alone for securing your salvation. What a fascinating perspective that Luther has. That's a little bit of Protestant Christian history, at least from a pastor's perspective, as it pertains to the Reformation and our theme today for in Christ alone. But I think Revelation chapter 1 also speaks into these ideas about accomplishment. For John, the author of the book of Revelation, there's something going on when he writes this letter. He's in deep despair. And not just him, but the whole Christian community. During the year 70 AD, the Roman Empire came to Jerusalem and destroyed the whole city. Everything. The temple. It was gone. It was such a challenging time for John and for the disciples that were still alive, for those who called themselves followers of Christ. It's hard to put into words what it was to lose the temple, to lose Jerusalem to Rome. And it wasn't just the loss of the temple, it was that, but it was also just this impending threat and doom that the Roman Empire would destroy those who called Jesus Lord. It was a scary time. The followers needed courage in those days to keep following Jesus. So for fear of Rome and, and the deeper fears of what real religion would look like without the temple, John writes this prophetic letter. At times it's vivid, it's scary. We look at it and we think there's a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. There's scary things happening here. And yet it's my thought that John uses these scary images as a way to conceal this message of in Christ alone to the followers of Christ around the Mediterranean. That if the Roman authorities get a copy, they may not really know what's going on. It's like code switching. This language is being used so that the followers of Christ know, ah, I know what John is talking about. He's pointing to Jesus. He uses this big, fantastical imagery to talk about how Christ is at the center of the new heaven and the new earth and how that shapes our lives in the here and now. I just want to read again this description of Jesus for you as John writes it in Revelation chapter 1. In the Gospels, there's so few descriptions of what Jesus looks like. You can look through the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1 and Mark will describe to you what John the Baptist looks like, but not Jesus. And so many of the Gospels give us rare glimpses of what Jesus looks like. 
And yet here in Revelation, it's revealed to John and he shares it with us. Listen to these words again. John says, In the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white, as white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death and of Hades. I love that line, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. Jesus is the revelation of God, that he is ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. That Jesus is at the center of that reality, and our participation in it comes through Christ alone. The beauty of this, I think, for us is many things, but I would like to just touch on two points. One is that when we meet the prophetic in this letter in Revelation, when we meet the revealed Jesus, he says, do not be afraid. This comforting word that comes from Jesus is spoken to the people of God who lost their temple that in losing everything, that they should hang on and trust in the resurrected Lord, that even in the midst of their destruction, they will be resurrected to in a new kind of way that they can't imagine. That comforting word comes to them. But that word of comfort also comes to the people living in the time of the Reformation 500 years ago. And it comes to us too. When it comes to trying to secure our salvation, don't be afraid Trust in Christ. If the gospel message is that the, the last shall be first, it happens because Jesus himself is the first and the last. This truth, I think it should help us when we think about our motivations in life. In Christ alone, it helps us frame why we do what we do. When I think back to those accomplishments that we talked around around that table at that meeting that I mentioned at the beginning of that sermon, I think in many ways, the reason why they were joyful examples is because they were shaped by our motivations and this idea of in Christ alone. There is great joy in making costumes for the children that they love. There is great joy in learning how to dance for personal growth and beauty. There's great joy in learning a story about a Stanford football player and then sharing it. Uh, perhaps it's a story that hasn't been told yet, but it needs to be told. I think in Christ alone shapes our motivations for why we do what we do. Secondly, when it comes to this sense of accomplishment, we can, we can take the process of learning and doing new things lightly. Knowing our salvation helps us try new things. And if we fail, it's okay. Really it is, it's okay. We can take a deep breath and try something else. It's fine. Maybe singing isn't your thing or dancing isn't your thing or, or something else, but we can just take joy in holding lightly our accomplishments and knowing that God calls us to live out our salvation as we anticipate the new heaven and the new earth. I know that idea is easier said than done, but it's helpful to hold on to our accomplishments lightly. 
It helps us remember that God is at work in our life. And on the other hand, it helps us remember that we have a calling as followers of Christ that may take us to places of success and failure. That God will use our lives if we offer them to him in service of his ministry for good news. For Martin Luther, what we celebrate today is a great success of protest 500 years ago. You have to imagine it would have been hard for Luther. Years after he posted the theses, he was excommunicated by the Catholic Church. He must have gone against friends, colleagues, people in his own parish at that time. They must have rejected him outright. That must have been so hard for him. And yet Luther was motivated by the truth of the gospel, that our lives are shaped in the present as we anticipate the new heaven and the new earth by the resurrection love of Jesus Christ. As we read the book of Revelation together in the next few weeks, I encourage us all, as we see these images like swords coming out of mouths, just remember Jesus' words. Do not be afraid. Trust that the coming new heaven and new earth and our participation in it comes through Christ alone. Friends, may that be a good word for us today and every day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Holy God, we do offer you our lives, and we ask, God, that you would help us to trust in you alone, that at the very heart of why it is that we're Christians is because you have saved us, and we know that, God. You have shared that. You have revealed that truth to us. So help us live out our salvation, as the Apostle Paul tells us, not to earn it, but to live it out, to share it with others. May it shape what we do and who we are, God. So bless the rest of this worship service and help us draw closer to you this day, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.